0: nor a librarian, nor a typesetter, a compositor, a designer, an illustrator, or a printer. Um, I have nothing more than a New York lawyer. And one thing lawyers learn is that when you have the, the facts, you pound at the jury. When you have the law, you pound at the judge. When you have neither the facts nor the law, you pound on the table. Tonight, Tonight, I am pounding on the table. Uh, Secondly, I have a not-so-secret life as an addicted book collector of Byron and his circle, but I am also very much aware of the dangers in speaking of one's personal narrow interests. At the beginning of this century, uh, one Augustine Beryl, like myself, a lawyer and an amateur bibliophile, wrote the following. Some of the greatest lovers of letters who have ever lived, Dr. Johnson, for example, and Thomas De Quincey and Carlyle, I've cared no more for first editions than I for Brussels sprouts. Never mind what your hobby is, books, prints, drawings, china, scarabs, keep it to yourself and for those like-minded with you. Collecting is a secret sin. The great pushing public must be kept out. It is sheer madness to puff and praise your hobby and invite every Tom, Dick, and Harry to inspect your stable. Such conduct is to invite, rebuff, to expose yourself keep the beast in its box. Well tonight whether you like it or not the beast is out of its box and you're going to hear a little bit about Lord Byron. Now I want to address the obvious question. How did I become a collector of books by and about the about Lord Byron? Actually the fair question is how did a lifelong New York Republican lawyer become interested in the quintessential romantic poet and a liberal taboo? Well, first trip to Europe was in 1959 and I somehow had a copy of Child Harold's Pilgrimage and the image of wrapping yourself in a cloak as you sail off across the Mediterranean was irresistible and I also learned that the first two lines of a number of Byron's poems were irresistible to many, not all, but enough young women. Uh, well, I gradually became fascinated and then enthralled by Byron's life, his works, and his extraordinarily marvelous letters. Uh, to the casual observer, Byron's life seems to contain the proverbial mixture of fame, power, money, love of beautiful women. One of his poems sold 10,000 copies on the day of publication. He was a superb swimmer, he was a crack pistol shop, he was a great horseman, and he was devastatingly handsome. His magnetism and charisma touched everyone with whom he came into, his, he came into contact. His best friend, John Cam Hobhouse, Said that Byron's power of attaching those about him to his person was such that no one I ever knew possessed. No human being could approach him without being sensible of this magical influence. And if all of that isn't enough, it's important to remember that Byron was physically handicapped. He was born with a club foot and he limped in pain all his life. Now let me go through Byron's life because it'll help you, it'll help me tell you about my collection in perspective. He was born George Gordon Byron in 1788, the year before the French Revolution. His mother, Catherine Gordon, was a minor Scottish aristocrat and small-scale heiress. His father, Captain Jack Byron, was a fortune hunter who had left his first wife and their daughter after spending that fortune. He did it again with most of Catherine Gordon's poor inheritance, and we, Gordy, and his mother uh, were, were lived in, in uh, Scotland where Byron spent the first 10 years of his life as wee Geordie in Aberdeen. When he was 10 years old, his uncle, the wicked Lord Byron, died without heirs, and George became almost miraculously the sixth Baron Byron. Now, despite the lack of family wealth, he entered the tiny but extraordinarily privileged world of the British aristocracy. In Byron's day, there were only 350 British peers out of a population of 12 and a half million. Byron and his mother immediately moved to the dilapidated family seat, Newstead Abbey near Nottingham, and from there Byron entered Harrow and Trinity College, Cambridge. When when he was 18 years old, Byron gave his friends a a, a privately printed collection of his poems. He liked the reception from his friends, and the next year, he arranged for his first collection of poems to be published for public distribution. In early 1808, this modest volume was savaged by an anonymous critic, no longer anonymous, at the, in the Edinburgh Review. In response, Byron wrote English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, which was published just before the 21-year-old Byron set off on a grand tour of the Eastern Mediterranean. He remained abroad for two years, spending most of his time in Greece, than a poor possession of the Turkish empire. Incidentally, during his sojourn abroad, English Bards was published in four more editions. Actually, there are two genuine fourth editions, but that's another story. Byron returned to England in 1811 with the draft of a long poem in his suitcase. It was called *Child Harold's Pilgrimage. When it was published several months later, Byron in his famous phrase said that he awoke to find himself famous. And his publisher john murray awoke to find himself a gentleman this was followed by the years of fame in england which included simply enormous literary success uh, the um, among many affairs the brief but legendary affair with lady caroline lamb and various escapades with his friends at newstead abbey Uh, during these years byron was simply the most popular and well-known englishman of uh, that horrifically brutal and gorgeously elegant age known as the Regency. Well, in 1815, in January of 1815, he married a simply awful woman. Uh, They had a child 11 months later, and the following month she left him. Uh, The reasons for the separation were never disclosed. Britons at every level of society heard whispered rumors of Byron's affairs with countesses, actresses, and prostitutes, and more scandalous rumors that he was mad homosexual, and uh, had engaged in incestuous relations with his half-sister, which had produced a child. All of these rumors were true. In April 1816, three months after his wife left him, Byron left England. He never returned, and he never again saw his wife or daughter. He was 24 years old. Byron settled near Geneva, where he met Mary and Percy Shelley, and Mary's half-sister, Claire Claremont, who who soon bore Byron another daughter. During that uh, remarkable, famous summer, Byron wrote Manfred, Shelley wrote The Hymn to Intellectual Beauty and Mont Blanc, Byron's doctor John William Polidori wrote The Vampire, and Mary Shelley, of course, wrote Frankenstein. In November, Byron moved on to Venice, where he stayed for three years. The uh, the beauty and sensuality of post-war Venice inspired him to write some of the most famous poetry in the English language. He also fell in love with a 19-year-old Italian countess who was married to a man 40 years her senior. When the political and moral climate in Venice became difficult, Byron followed his countess to Ravenna, where they became involved with the revolutionary Carbonari. Uh, They were forced to move to Pisa, where he again met Shelley and the odious Lee Hunt. In the autumn of 1822, Byron and his Contessa moved to Albero near Genova where he met the most gorgeous Countess Blessington, who was living in a famous menage a trois. But Byron was restless. And when the Greeks began their war of independence from the Ottoman Empire, Byron was asked to enlist in their cause. He agreed. He sailed for the war in July, 1823. And nine months later, he died in the small seaside seaside town of Missolonghi. He was 36 years old. Byron had come of age in the midst of a titanic, brutal, global war. Byron was born after, and he died before, Thomas Jefferson. And I never forget that Byron also lived at the same time as Napoleon, Simon Bolivar, Goethe, Goya, Turner, and Beethoven, and yet Byron was the most famous European of his age. In terms of our time, Byron was a combination Jack Kennedy, Guevara and Madonna. Um, Byron was the most popular author of the day before the public learned of the scandal surrounding his separation. After the scandal, the public's demand for information about Byron was insatiable. For the rest of his life, the popular print and the publishing industry fed on Byron. The Byron phenomenon in those days compares easily to the world's current fascination with the present British royal family. Byron's works and life and the myth remain irresistible. Outside of the English-speaking world, except for Shakespeare, Byron is today the most well-known English author. And uh, inside the English-speaking world, Byron, of course, remains a fascination for many people. Um, academics in the publishing industry continue to feed on Byron. During the three years 1992, 1993, and 1994, almost 400 articles directly concerning Lord Byron were published in English in recognized journals. In 1994, and thus far into 1995, I've purchased at least a dozen books dealing directly with Byron. And all these figures do not include books about other romantics in which Byron is a prominent figure. Uh, These figures do, however, include a book uh, recently published by Penn State entitled Alexander Bestyshev-Marlinsky, and Russian Byronism. In short, there is simply a mountain of printed material relating to Lord Byron. Now, first book. Carol bought me our first book in 1966, one for my birthday. She went to Sotheby Park Burnett, as it was then known, and for $65 bought me a copy of The Prisoner of Chillon. This was the beginning of the obsession, which turned me into Mr. Hyde. In my view, hell hell is populated by certain public servants, most head waiters, and almost all booksellers. (laughs) Almost ten years later, I had accumulated a lot of books. They consisted of a melange of first editions, which seemed important, numerous 19th and 20th century collected editions and biographies, a sprinkling of Byroniana, and a seemingly vast number of unreadable academic tomes. Perhaps more importantly, this growing pile had overflowed our few bookshelves and had taken a dogleg into the dining room. It was at this point that I decided I needed a list of my books for two obvious reasons. First, money. I was beginning to spend an increasingly amount of increasing amount of money on books um, I already owned. Um, I, I was buying I was buying old books, new books, rare books anything that I liked, but I had no idea whether they were worth the price or had any relationship to any of the other books. Uh, The second um, was direction. I was beginning to know a lot about Lord Byron, but I knew nothing about books except that I was obviously driving booksellers crazy. It was clear that I had no overall direction and had to make certain decisions. Had I purchased anything important? Should I buy all the editions of Byron Works? Should I buy anything with Byron's name in the title? Should I buy anything even remotely connected to Byron? There were some other things. Did, did I need insurance? Should I have books fixed? Um, so I made a list, not a catalog, a list, and I did it the hard way. Shelf by shelf, longhand, yellow, legal sized, foolscap paper, which I gave piece by piece to my increasingly hostile secretary, who arranged the books according to date of publication and typed the list. I was proud of the length of my list, at least I, uh, I wasn't buying books which I already had, and I could identify which of Byron's poems I didn't have. Then came that fateful evening when a friend, a well-known New York bookseller, and his wife came by the apartment for a drink before we went out for dinner. I showed him the list which I had struggled on for almost a year, and he skimmed it, tossed it aside, and said that other than possibly preventing me from buying books I already owned, my list had no bibliographic, scholarly, or historical value. It was unattractive clumsily organized, and he suggested and he suggested that I never again show it to any professional book person, or, or anyone else for that matter. He said, I really should at least try and describe the books. Well, by this time, I had begun to review auction catalogs and had acquired a reprint of Thomas Wise's uh, two-volume catalog of his Byron collection and some other what I now call bibliographical works. Um, they gave me some indication of how a book and book collection should be described. In addition, I was aware of four basic facts. First, I knew something about Byron, his works, and his life, but I knew nothing about books. Secondly, I sensed that I needed to collect more than first editions because I had learned that Byron constantly corrected and added to his works. For example, um, there was a privately printed edition of the Jower. It contained 453 lines. The first public edition contained 684 lines. The third edition, 950 lines. The fourth edition, 1,048 lines. The fifth and sixth editions, 1,215 lines. The seventh edition, 1,334 lines. And all seven editions were published in 1813. And third, I wanted to acquire books that that were important to me, books that reflected his strong interest in the romance, my interest in the romance of Byron's life, Byron's Mediterranean travels, his life in Regency, London, his three-year stay in that most wonderful of cities, Venice, his women, and his early death in a war of independence. So it was against this background that approximately 10 years ago I decided, in a moment of absolute unqualified madness, that I would build and describe a collection of books and other printed materials relating to Lord Byron's life, works, and times. And again, I wanted to do more than merely describe the books that I acquired. I wanted to place them in the context of the political and social aspects of Byron's life. Now, in retrospect, my decision was an act of ignorance and madness since I knew nothing about bibliography. I had no idea what this project would cost. I had no regular access to an academic institution's resources. I was and still am working for a living and traveling fairly regularly abroad and between offices in New York and Washington. And I had a wife and a teenage daughter who wanted to continue to eat regularly and maintain a certain style on the east side of Manhattan. Um, nonetheless, like most madmen, I pressed forward and embarked on this project. Uh, I faced two modest problems. One, how do you arrange a catalog? And two, how do you describe a book? Now, the answers to these questions didn't seem difficult. I am a lawyer. Um, I decided to tackle the arrangement of the catalog first, before I just figured out how to describe the books, since this would permit me to identify books that I already had. I mentioned before that I had some indication of how to organize a catalog, since as I had acquired Wise's catalogs, catalog by Francis Randolph, a wonderful catalog, unfinished, I had uh, also uh, several famous booksellers catalogs of Byron collections, and I had a, a, a large stack of, of miscellaneous materials. There was a catalog of, um, from Newstead Abbey's Byron co- uh, book collection. And I had exhibition catalogs from institutions such as the Huntington in Texas, and Pierpont Morgan, the Golia Club, and the Victoria and Albert Museum. So I had some idea. All, virtually all of these catalogs divided the collections into works, biographies, criticism, Byroniana, and essentially arranged the items within each group in chronological order. But I wanted a different arrangement for my catalog. First, I had become convinced that it would be more fun to try and build a collection of Byron's life and works from more than a literary viewpoint. I was satisfied that Byron's life and work could have, would have the greatest meaning if viewed in the context of the times in which he lived, not my thinking. Byron's close friend, the Irish poet Thomas Moore, uh, wrote the first great biography of Byron six years after he died. It was published in 1830. Uh, Moore said that there are those who trace in the peculiar character of Lord Byron's genius strong features of the relationship to the times in which he lived. Well, 140 years later, one of the great Byron scholars of our time, Professor Jerome McGann of the University of Virginia, said this, he said, one of the most important and recurrent aspects of all Byron's poetry is its insistence that the reader understand Byron's life and literary career in world historical terms. Byron's poetry forces its reader to take the deeds and experiences of his life as a coherent objective correlative for the entire European experience between 1789 and 1824. That was number one. Secondly, I'm an avid reader of biographies, diaries, letters, journals, memoirs, and I wanted room to involve the persons who were a part of Byron's life or who were directly influenced by him. Besides, there is nothing more fun than repeating gossip and memorializing the hysterically funny things that Regency wits said about one another. I'll pass over some of these later. I'll tell you. Um, But beyond the jokes and the quips and the gossip, Byron had a profound effect on numerous individuals of all ages and stages of life. Let me give you some examples. There exists a letter dated October 27, 1812, in which a 16-year-old girl states that, I have seen a lot of Lord Byron lately. On December 1st, uh, the same young girl, a year later, now 17, wrote to a friend that, I have got Lord Byron's Bride of Abydos and have already read it through twice. I am quite captivated by it. Pray get it or let me send it to you and tell me if you do not admire the lines and the story and the poetry. You may think me frantic perhaps, but this is now my rage. The next year, the same girl, now 18 years old, was reporting on the Corsair that Lord Byron's new and best poem was out yesterday and I had the first that was issued and devoured it twice in the course of the day. And in 1816, when Byron's famous poem, Fare Thee Well, which he wrote to his wife before he sailed off into exile, was pirated and published in the newspapers, um, this same girl, now 21 years old, read it and wrote to a friend, have you got Lord Byron's lines to her, underlined Uh, As a farewell, I cried like a fool over them. You don't know what I feel for and about him. The following year, this devoted admirer of Byron died in childbirth. Her death produced a national crisis because she was her Royal Highness, the Princess Charlotte of Wales, the only child of George IV and his awful wife. An even younger, but equally impressionable young girl was just as enthusiastic about Byron and his works when writing to a friend. I have been reading Lord Byron's Corsair. I think many of the passages exquisitely beautiful, the parting of Conrad and Medora and the intercessory between the hero and Golnari are in my humble opinion two of the most beautiful. This author was 11 years old. She lived on Wimpole Street and her name was Elizabeth Barrett. One more example. For years I have been looking for a special copy, booksellers take note, of Venetia, a relatively popular book by an ardent 19th century devotee of Byron. In his youth, this author dressed like Byron, wore his hair in ringlets and sailed off on a grand tour to the Mediterranean. In his maturity, he hired Byron's Venetian gondola as his servant and arranged for Byron's statue to be placed at London's Hyde Park Corner, where it stands to this day. This passionate, lifelong admirer of Byron died as the Earl of Beaconsfield, but most people know him best as Benjamin Disraeli. Incidentally, Benjamin's father, Isaac, was one of Byron's favorite authors. I like these kind of anecdotes and I wanted my catalog to have an arrangement which uh, which could permit me to include the responses to Byron by men and women in all walks of life. I wanted a catalog which could embrace my interests, and so I began. I started by arranging the works, and it took about 15 minutes before I bumped into my first problem. Byron's most famous work, *Child Harold's Pilgrimage, consists of four long cantos. Cantos one and two were published in 1812, canto three in 1816, and canto four in 1818. Um, the same is true uh, of Byron's masterpiece, Don Juan. Its 16 cantos were published between 1819 and 1824 and by two different publishers. Well, were these one poem or several poems? Wise, Thomas Wise, treats both Child Harold's Pilgrimage and Don Juan as single poems, as does uh, Jerry McGann in his recently completed Oxford edition. On the other hand, Randolph treated them as separate poems, now, based on my 15 minutes experience in bibliographic studies, I decided to treat them as cantos, to treat the, each canto as a separate poem. And by the way, today I'm certain I'm right and I'm prepared to debate anybody. Now, one of my regrets is that I never kept copies of the earliest versions of my catalog. But, but I want to show you now where, where I stand. Harold, can... Uh, yeah, okay. I have uh, a handout. This is the table of contents to my catalog. You J.B., if you'll pass her. All right. I thought you were coming to get me. Now let me tell you what you don't see in the table of contents. Um, every section and subsection, in many of the approximately eight or nine hundred books which listed in my catalog, is accompanied—God help me—by an introductory essay, which I have tried to develop from non-standard sources, and which I add to every time I stumble on a funny, or interesting, or sexy anecdote. Uh, this method and a word processor permits me to continually add or create new sections whenever I bump into a person or event or story which I find weird or interesting. Thus, what you see is a work in progress. And the more I collect, the more I'm convinced that my catalog's slightly non-traditional arrangement is correct for my purposes, my collection, and my interests. Um, let me give you three examples why this arrangement helps me. Good stories. First, you will note on page three that section 2C is entitled The Medwin Controversy. Thomas Medwin was two months older than Byron. He was a cousin of Percy Shelley, and they attended the same school. He served in the army from 1813 to 1819, chiefly in India, and in 1820, he moved to Pisa to join Shelley and Byron in their circle. He was also a poet and writer, of course. Uh, He spent in Pisa, he spent considerable time with Byron socially uh, in, in, in in the Italian hills. In July 1824, Medwin learned of Byron's death in Greece a few months earlier. Medwin promptly sat down and in three weeks produced a book which he called Conversations of Lord Byron. It was published on October 23rd, 1824, and one of the greatest storms in English literature broke. Medwin's book managed to infuriate almost every person mentioned. John Murray was so incensed by the conversations that he considered suing Medwin for libel. Thomas Moore seethed that the work was full of gross errors. John Cam Hobhouse challenged Medwin to a duel. Robert Southey, then the poet laureate, was so incensed with Byron's comments about him, as reported by Medwin, that Southey wrote and had published in in the Daily Courier newspaper a letter which reads as follows, in part. Lord Byron brought a stigma upon English literature he perverted great talents to the worst purposes. He set up for pander general to the youth of Great Britain. He committed a high crime and misdemeanor against society by setting forth a work in which mockery was mingled with horrors, filth with impiety, profligacy with sedition and slander, Don Jewett. Lord Byron entertained the last degree of disgrace when his head was set up as a sign at a radical bookseller's, bookseller's shop one of those preparatory schools for the brothel and the gallows, where obscenity, sedition, and blasphemy are retailed in drams for the vulgar. Instead of so the, the, the letter says much about Southey, since of course it was written six months after Byron died. By the way, Southey's rage was exacerbated by the fact that he was the recipient of Byron's hysterically funny, off-color dedication to Don Juan, and I believe that Southey spent the rest of his life mortally embarrassed by the dedication. In the event, almost everyone printed a public or private response to Medwin's book, and I've been lucky enough to find most of these publications. However, my favorite incident um, involves an unprinted response. Medwin uh, reported that Lady Caroline Lamb had broken into Byron's apartments and scribbled remember me, remember me in Byron's copy of Beckford's Vatek. So that was particularly galling to uh, to Byron since Vatek was one of his favorite books. Byron seeing remember me, remember me, knowing who wrote it, sat down and printed and scribbled out the following reply. Remember thee, I doubt it not, thy husband too shall think of thee. By neither shalt thou be forgot. Thou false to him, thou fiend to me. Medwin printed it. His book immediately went into a second edition and a third edition was planned. Before the third edition, however, he was visited by Lady Caroline Lamb. We draw the curtains, we open the curtains, uh, third edition has no reference to Lady Caroline Lamb. That must have been some visit. Um, the Medwin controversy went on for a number of years, and it would not be possible to describe the impact of the Medwin controversy merely by listing the, uh, the books. Now, a second example is less well-known. In fact, it is so little known that I am virtually the only person who knows it. Um, and now you're going to know it. There is, in Section 5 of my, uh, my table of contents, an entry for Chandos Lee and his Byron poems. Uh, two years ago, a well-known London bookseller uh, offered me a set of books written by Lord Lee and which came from the library of his family seat, um, Stoneleigh Abbey. I bought the books for reasons which will shortly become clear and decided to take a closer look at, uh, at the author. Chandos Lee, Dictionary of National Biography was fine. Chandos Lee was born in 1791 into a family of considerable wealth. His father had been privately tutored by Isaac Hunt, who named his son Lee Hunt after the family. Chandos went to Harrow, where he met the slightly older Lord Byron. He went on to Oxford and took a grand tour to Germany and other parts of Europe at the same time Byron was in the Eastern Mediterranean. In 1812, Lee published his first volume of poetry with the somewhat titillating title uh, The Island of Love, and he published um, another volume the following year. In 1813, uh, Byron and Lee's paths crossed again when Lee surfaced as a potential buyer of Byron's Newstead Abbey. Nothing came of this possibility and Lee left on a grand tour. According to the Dictionary of National Biography, Lee returned the following year and settled into the life of a country aristocrat. He was a, apparently a minor member of the Holland House set, the Whig, and he seems to have been an active supporter of the new fledgling Liberal Party. He married in 1819 and he and his wife had nine children. He continued to publish uh, verse and prose and tracts on agriculture. Um, finally, during Lord Melbourne's uh, last years as prime minister, Lord Melbourne, of course, was Caroline Lamb's husband. The barony of, Stone, Stone, of Stoneleigh Abbey which had died out was revived and Chandos became the first Baron Lee of Stoneleigh. Uh, the Lees, incidentally, were close relatives of that Austin family and cousin Jane spent time at Stoneleigh Abbey. That too is another story. Chandos died in 1850 while on a visit to Germany. Simple enough. And to the casual observer, Chandos Lee seems to have lived the life of a typical country aristocrat. But a very different portrait is buried in a variety of books. Chandos Lee emerges as a very, very strange man. Now, I told you I write introductions. And I started to look for more about Chandos Lee, and I found a number of them. John Cam Hobhouse, who was a careful writer, recorded that he was present on two occasions in 1814 when Lee was describing his, uh, the second of his grand tours. According to Hobhouse, again, a careful writer, Lee's uh, tour took him to the Levant, particularly Albania, the Morea, and especially Egypt. Hobhouse recounts Lee's tales of his travels in some detail, including a rather bizarre incident in a mummy pit. Hobhouse states that uh, Lee heard was had some guides with him. Uh, Lee heard a rattle in one of the guide's throat and saw the guide's candle go out just as the guide dropped dead. Another Arab jumped forward to help his friend and at the same instant, The second candle went out, and the second guide dropped dead upon his companion. Lee recounted that he made a last second escape from the two guides' understandably angry tribesmen. Well, okay, I thought, two unfortunate Arabs died in the mummy pit. Well, then I came across Chandos Lee in Lee Hunt's autobiography. According to Lee Hunt, it seems that a set of masons were employed in building a bridge near the Lee home, and that somehow... The bridge collapsed, and both of the workmen were crushed to death. Chandos Lee, this time, was accused and tried for the murder and burial of the Masons. Lee Hunt said the subsequent acquittal was perfectly proper, since the trial was based on preposterous accusations perpetrated by drunken witnesses. Well, maybe. My real interest in Lee, however, arose, aside from the fact that he may be a serial killer, um, is his obvious obsession with Byron. Now between September 1813 and December 1814, the artist Thomas Phillips painted a portrait of Byron. You all know it. It's, the, it's that wonderful profile with the blue cape and the open white collar. It's become the standard image of Byron. Uh, Phillips painted four versions of this painting and, and um, Chandos Lee acquired one of them. He also published a number of other verses, of, volumes of verses, all of which included poems about, about Byron verses addressed to lord byron on the publication of child harold on the departure of lord byron for the continent etc etc et in 1819 he published yet another volume this was the volume that the bookseller in london came to me with because in that volume are five leaves five leaves of manuscript verses in lee's hand uh, four of these poems deal directly with byron and they are unpublished Each of these poems is, to say the least, really, really weird. Um, But I'll I'll save them for the Byron Journal. And suffice it to say that my catalog describes Lord Lee very differently from the way he's described in the Dictionary of National uh, Biography. Let me give you an example about how my collection has produced a mini collection. I've mentioned the name John Cam Hobhouse before. He's primarily known as Byron's best friend and virtually every catalog of every Byron collection contains some of Hobhouse's works. But it became clear to me that Hobhouse was far too important not to have a significant place of his own in my collection. Um, Hobhouse was a man of rather undistinguished appearance and his prominent nose led Beau Brummel to call his pet parrot Hobhouse, um, which is the name of one of our standard um, poodles. Um, Our other standard poodle is the Prince Regent. Um, Hobhouse met Byron at Cambridge and accompanied Byron on his first uh, tour to the East. He was the best man at Byron's wedding. He visited Byron in Geneva and Venice, and after Byron's body had been brought back to England, Hobhouse, alone of Byron's intimate friends, accompanied the body on the long trip to Nottinghamshire for burial. After the burial, Hobhouse remained the protector of his friend's memory and reputation And it is because of Hobhouse that Byron's marble statue stands in Christopher Wren's library at Trinity College, Cambridge, the only statue in that magnificent library. But apart from Byron, apart from Byron, Hobhouse had a long and marvelously varied life. He managed to be in Paris during Napoleon's Hundred Days. He became a radical politician who went to jail for contempt of Parliament, but he was politically astute enough to moderate his views and to remain in Parliament for over 30 years. It was Hobhouse who invented the political formula, His Majesty's Opposition. He retired from Parliament at the age of 65 and was elevated to the peerage as Baron Broughton to Gifford. I should note that one of my favorite books is a book called Byron's Bulldog, which is the letters of John Cam Hobhouse to Lord Byron, which was edited by Peter Graham. Professor Graham is here in the first row to my pleasure. In addition to his, his political career, Hobhouse wrote a number of works, Uh, His literary efforts were mediocre and met with little success, and one of his works landed him in jail. Uh, But he knew everyone, and he was a perceptive observer and reporter of the great political and social events of his time, and he was a thorough, careful travel writer. In 1869, Hobhouse was then 83 years old. He read an article by the famous American author Harriet Beecher Stowe, which accused Byron of incest. The octogenarian Hobhouse immediately authorized the private printing and circulation of a long memorandum that he had written and suppressed 40 years earlier on the causes of Lord and Lady Byron's separation. He died only a few months after he saw his pamphlet published, still loyal to Byron, whom he outlived by 45 years. And what happened to Harriet Beecher Stowe, The author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, who caused this enormous controversy and a mount, absolute mount? of uh, publications on both sides of the atlantic when she published her book accusing byron of incest with his half sister mrs stowe's biographer forest wilson concluded whatever the truth or falsity of harriet's charges against lord byron her publication of them was a disaster for her career never again would she stand alone as the supreme female figure in the american scene she had disillusioned her following For years, the Byron scandal would remain as a bad taste in the public's mouth, largely accountable for the rapidity with which Harriet's fame and memory declined. Today, of course, almost every modern scholar agrees with Mrs. Stowe's assertions. Again, you will note a separate section on the Stowe controversy, since I have acquired almost all of the books and pamphlets involved in that now forgotten contretemps. Incidentally, one of the penny pamphlets that was generated by that uh, controversy has a portrait on the wrapper on the of a rather disheveled but voluptuous young woman who was identified as Barry Byron's half-sister, Augusta. Uh, the same portrait was also used on pamphlets, uh, and she was identified as Manon Lascaux and Lola Montez. Now, the point of these, these anecdotes is to demonstrate the impact which Byron had on little-known persons uh, like Thomas Midwin, John Cam Hobhouse, and Chandos Lee, and on major figures like Harriet Beecher Stowe and to emphasize that the lives of these individuals appear very differently, if not seen in the context of Byron's work and life. And I think that I'm trying to move my catalog in that direction. Let me turn to the arrangement from the arrangement of my catalog to my struggles to learn how to describe books. Everyone in this room knows, of course, that bibliography is a complex discipline with its own vocabulary. But most booksellers in New York don't ask a casual browser if he or she wishes to buy an unrecorded 12th edition of Child Harold's Pilgrimage printed on unwatermarked watermarked paper bound in untanned sheepskin. I don't know if anybody's seen untanned sheepskin, but we have a two-volume set of Lord Byron's uh, works bound, bound in sheepskin, woolly fur, and all, and nobody really wants to touch this set. In any event, in any event, I, was, uh, I, I told you before, I was receiving catalogs from dealers and auction houses, and they all talked about things like quarto and octavo, something called 12 mo, and all referred to correct collations, watermarks, cancels, states, and issues. At first, these terms didn't seem very difficult. Again, I'm a lawyer. I, I knew that I was in trouble when I began discovering that Wise had a book which he identified as the fifth, spurious, second, fourth edition of English Bards and Scotch Reviewers. Uh, I was somewhat disappointed to realize that one actually had to spend time examining a book before describing it, but I, I was distinctly annoyed when I discovered that often several books had to be examined before a book could be described. This became clear when I read Francis Randolph's description of the first edition of Byron's poem, Lara. The first variant was printed on unwatermarked paper. The second variant is printed on watermarked paper, as are the third and fourth variants. But in the third variant, the Roman numeral two in the running title on page 82 appears askew. In the fourth variant, the second period in the running title on page 20 has been dropped. And it would seem that copies of the first variant were issued in blue drab boards with tan paper backstrip, and the later copies were issued in dark brown drab boards. Right. I realized that I I at least had to learn the basic vocabulary, so what do I do? I I went back to school. I took the uh, Rare Book School's basic course in the history of the book, and I took, when I could find the time, other courses on books at local schools in the New York area. Now, while we're not talking about identifying 16th century volumes printed in Japanese at a Romanian monastery by Portuguese and Chinese monks, bibliographical research in Byron is complicated by three factors. First, Byron's life almost precisely parallels a revolution in the manner in which English books were printed, illustrated, bound, and sold. Second, Byron's popularity led to the publication of innumerable piracies, which in turn generated endless correspondence between Byron and his publishers over real and threatened lawsuits, contracts, and prices. And all of this occurred precisely at the time when the English courts were re-examining the laws of copyright and privacy. And third, rush, the rush to satisfy the extraordinary public demand for Byron's works continues to this day to complicate Byron, uh, bibliographical research in Byron. By the standards of Regency England, Byron's publisher, John Murray, was a careful publisher, but Murray issued 10,000 copies of the first edition of Canto Four of Child Harold's pilgrimage I stood in Venice on the Bridge of Sighs. And years later, a Yale professor identified 49 different states of this first edition. Byron's popularity has attracted many scholars, and there is a substantial body of bibliographical research into Byron's works. Unfortunately for the novice, uh, nobody agrees. Uh, Let me give you one famous example, and one example which astounds me. Byron wrote The Corsair during the last two weeks of December 1813. John Murray published it several weeks later in what may be the single most successful publishing venture in all of English literature. Murray sold 10,000 copies of this work on the day of publication. In the, no- in the next two weeks, he issued three more editions and sold another 25,000 copies. Three more editions were published that same year. Um, it's curious, to today, um, it's hard to find a first edition of the corset in pamphlet form. Now, the very success of the poems produced one of the sharpest disputes in all of Byron bibliography. The problem arises because of the inclusion of six additional poems in some, but not all, of the early editions. One of these six poems, Lines to a Lady Weeping, was Byron's famous response to Princess Charlotte's uh, reaction when her father told her, Her father, the Prince Regent, told her that he was going to retain the Tory ministry and turn his back on his Whig friends. Um, Murray was trapped, when Byron delivered this poem to him, Murray was trapped between his fear that Byron's brief poem was libelous and Murray's great desire not to offend his star author and principal meal ticket. As a result, Murray shuffled the poems in and out of the various issues of the early editions. Wise says, I'm going to give you three of them, Wise says the first issue of the first edition did not contain the six additional poems and the volume ended with the printer's imprint on page 100. Wise also states that the six additional poems were first added to most, but not all, of the copies of the second issue of the first edition and that this extended the volume to 108 pages. Wise concedes that some copy of this second issue lacked the additional poem and also consists of 100 pages. But there is no imprint according to Wise because the printer, in light of the urgent demand, hurriedly put copies into wrappers without waiting for the additional sheets. And this accounts for the absence of an imprint on page 100. Some years later, William McCarthy of Yale said that Wise was confused and got it all backwards. McCarthy believes that the first issue, McCarthy has a sensible logical approach. McCarthy believes that the first issue consisted of the corsair and the six additional poems on 108 pages with the printer's imprint on the last page mccarthy also says that the second issue consisted solely of the corsair on 100 pages without the six additional poems which were simply torn out when murray became frightened and says mccarthy for the third issue murray took the logical step to cover up his tearing out the pages by having the printer add the phrase the end and the imprint to page 100. Uh, Bowers, incidentally, agrees with McCarthy. But some years later, Randolph, pretty good bibliographer, disagreed with both Wise and McCarthy. Randolph says that there were four issues of the first edition. First issue included the six additional poems and ended on page 108. The second issue did not include the poems and ended on page 100 without an imprint. The third issue also did not include the issue. What I did, I'm not allowed to have an opinion. So what I did in my catalog was simply um, describe the uh, copies of the Corsair that I had, and identify each possibility of, uh, of precedent. But is the problem important? It's important. It's important today because the Corsair is a super hot topic for academics because of the underlying um, sexual politics that Byron engaged in, there is a reversal of typical gender roles. And academics are again looking at the Corsair, and it is important to know how this poem um, was received by the public. Let me give you a brief example of where academics have also disappointed me. When he was 19 years old, Byron had a collection of his poems privately printed under the title Fugitive Pieces. The local Anglican vicar was shocked, shocked at the immorality of some of the poems and and Byron immediately recalled every volume except four. Now, these four copies have survived, including the Vickers. Um, uh, Seventy years later, Harry Buxton Foreman observed that the reverend gentleman was careful while depriving others of the chance of reading the book to reserve to himself the option of that pleasure. Um, Byron immediately revised the suppressed edition and quickly arranged for the printing of a new collection entitled Poems on Various Occasions, which Byron described as miraculously chaste. There is uh, amazingly considerable confusion over the number of poems contained in Fugitive Pieces and Poems on Various Occasions. In 1898, Ernest Hartley Colage, the first great editor of Byron's works, stated that Fugitive Pieces, the first collection, contained 36 poems and that Poems on Various Occasions, the second, um, contained 48 poems. But he lists 51 poems in his table of contents. Um, In 1833, Professor um, Rice stated that poems on various occasions contained 48 poems. In the same year, Wise said, however, that uh, Coleridge was wrong and that it contained 51 poems. Um, Professor Pratt of Texas, a major Byronist, ducks the issue and states only that Byron took one poem out of the first volume and they had a little, uh, and added 11 poems to the second, which is not very helpful. Professor McGann of Virginia, in his recently completed magisterial work um, on Byron's uh, poems, ed- edition of Byron's works, believes that Fugitive Pieces consists of 38 poems and that poems on various occasions consists of 48 poems. Uh, this, of course, will not do. And I decided to try my hand at uh, some bibliographical efforts. I took my copy of poems on on uh, various occasions, which is signed by Byron, so I know it's okay. I took it over to the Pierpont Morgan Library and compared it with Byron's own copy of the first one, Fugitive Pieces, which Byron himself annotated, um, which is almost certainly the rarest of all printed material relating to Byron. Uh, if anybody cares, which nobody does, I count 40 poems in Fugitive Pieces and 51 poems in poems on various occasions. So in summary, where do I stand? I've never been able to find a watermark. I can't collate. I still can't tell the difference between gatherings and choirs. I'm uncertain whether a book is ever respined or rebacked. Uh, and I get up in the middle of the night to find if the decoration, which I described as a dental, is really a fleuron. Um, I, I have, however, stopped my practice of asking my wife, a distinguished interior decorator, to confirm my decisions on the proper <laughs> color of bindings. That ended when I showed her three books and asked her whether the first binding was deep rose or burgundy, whether the second was tangerine or mustard, and whether the third was teal or aquamarine. She said they're red, yellow, and blue. <laughs> but I, I'm, uh, I'm no longer being humiliated by book dealers. And with a perfectly straight face, I can ask things like whether the word dispatch on line five of page seven in a copy of a first edition of English bards and Scotch reviews is spelled with an E or an I, or whether page five in the bookseller's copy of Manfred is a cancel. Uh, trust me, all these struggles uh, become worthwhile, and there's a sense of unbounded joy in watching a bookseller visibly deflate as he or she silently recalculates her price. Well, there are are many ways of entering a talk about Byron, and it's fun to keep listening to to others and looking for things. And over the years, I've selected three endings, and I'm never sure which one to use before a group such as this, so I'm gonna give you all three. The first is Matthew Arnold's poetical tribute to Byron. When Byron's eyes were shut in death, we bowed our heads and held our breath, Our soul felt him like the thunders roll. With shivering heart, the strife we saw of passion with eternal law. And yet, with reverential awe, we watched the fount of fiery life, which flowed from that titanic strife. The second comes from one of the great romantic biographies ever written about Byron. Uh, Subsequent research has added much to Byron's life. But it was written in French. Translated into English the same year it's by Andre Maurois. And this spectacular biography, romantic biography, ends as follows. At Missolonghi, which nowadays is a little town both prosperous and healthy, the Greeks have laid out a garden of heroes where a column stands bearing the name of Byron. The fisher folk in this strange realm of water and brine still live in their huts of plated reeds, but they are no strangers to the name of Byron. They do not know that he was a poet But if asked about him, they will answer, he was a very brave man, and he came to Greece because he loved freedom. And my third favorite comes from old Beau Brummel. Before his final descent into madness and dirt at the convent of the Little Sisters in Calais, just as they were taking him away, he said, oh God, I would rather have been Byron than Bonaparte. Thank you very much.